You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. We have uh, Baron Channer back on the show. Baron Channer is a successful uh, real estate and tech investor. You can check out his prior episodes. Uh, That would be episode 13 and 14. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the Go Show, Baron. Thanks for having me back, Jamarlin. Let's go ahead and kick things off with this Nike thing. Uh You know, Nike comes out and surprises a lot of people and embraces Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nike's with Cap, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of folks in our community, they start crip walking. Oh my gosh, Nike, (laughs) this is so great. Uh How did you respond uh, to to, to that event? Yeah, to me it was nothing new. I mean, the, the reality is, one, Nike started as a counterculture company, right? You know, Nike's client base are people who skew younger, more liberal. Their sponsored athletes base are people who skew towards inclined to be supportive of Kaepernick more so than not. So the only group of people in the Nike sphere that could possibly impact them and disagree with the position they took is maybe some portions of their investor base. But from a business standpoint, it sounded like the easiest thing for them to do to just simply say, sometimes you take a risk and if you take a risk and you get punished for it, sometimes it may be worth it. Just do it. So to me, it just sounded like it's still, it, it was a simple thing to do. Should they be credited for it? Yeah, I think so, because they're a, they are a significant Fortune 500 company, and the easy thing to do would have been to stay out of it. Should they be lauded for it? No. Things like that should be ordinary. It should be expected that you believe someone should be able to exercise their constitutional rights, which may include them disagreeing with you in the same way that we all accepted Larry Flint being able to run an adult entertainment establishment that may not have comported with most of our religious beliefs or or lifestyle beliefs, but he was able to walk around and be a respected person and get interviewed on national and syndicated shows. I'm in the the mood to debate today, Okay, uh, but I share uh, a lot of your... uh, You know I enjoy uh, debating with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) When it came out and everybody's like shocked and like, man, I can't believe they're writing with Kaepernick. Yeah. I actually mentioned on the Go show in a prior episode uh, that now that uh, folks are checking more for what someone looks like, how much money someone has. Like we're entering another kind of uh, period where people want more substance. And so the companies we're going to start to move in to think about how I can profit from some of these progressive movements. And in a prior episode, I mentioned, um, I believe it was Kendall Jenner and Pepsi. Uh, where uh, there was a lot of backlash from Pepsi that. trying to kind of pimp the movement. Yeah. Nike embracing Cap, uh, as you mentioned, is nothing new, right? So when I was a, a kid, I think it maybe reflects our age uh, mm-hmm. a bit because growing up, I would wear Tim Hardaway's with the X. Uh, I saw during uh, the Malcolm X movie, which at that time was controversial, uh, in terms of a movie with uh, so much uh, Nation of Islam elements mm-hmm. in it. Michael Jordan representing the X. Uh, Nike coming out with the X Tim Hardaway shoes. Nike fully embracing Spike Lee. Uh, this is nothing new. And not just embracing with a pat on the back, but embracing him with commerce. So give him an opportunity to make money and do business, which is the best kind of embrace. 
Nike understands its demographic. They know where their cool comes from. It doesn't just come from black, but Nike's cool has been uh, coming from intelligent black, uh, progressive black. Uh, and so Cap, I believe, is just a, a, an extension of what they've done over the decades intelligently. Mm-hmm. To your point that, hey, the community shouldn't be crip walking like, oh my gosh. Uh, I think about the market cap of Nike. You know, we're talking about $140 billion. Uh, and so we, as a community, we have to be thoughtful on the value exchange, right? Uh, are we cheap where someone can just do something uh, and we act like uh, it's some type of systemic change where we support Nike? Mm-hmm. You know, we we don't just talk support for Nike. We help Nike stock. We purchase a lot of Nike shoes. We influence their marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we help Nike. Mm-hmm. We bang for Nike. Uh, and so if they do something a little, you know, they embrace cap, think about how much you're giving to Nike uh, and they do this little thing for you. I would say there in, in the spirit of the debate that part of your gift is your contrarian perspective on culture. And I think that's showing out a little bit here from the following standpoint. We're trying to create norms and frame relationships with people. And every other Fortune 500 company, arguably every other meaningfully sized company, have run away from this issue. I suspect many of them would probably be inclined to be supportive of CAP if given an option, support or don't support, but they've taken the route of safety. So I do think that as a community, we should be showing some degree of appreciation when Nike steps up to even get into the fray of the controversy, right? So from that standpoint, I think that we should be doing that because it's sort of like a relationship. It's even if people are doing things that you've come to expect or you should expect, if those things merit some degree of recognition, show it so that it can be clear that, okay, we're still paying attention because the second we fall asleep and we say, hey, Nike did it, but so what, they should have done it, then that starts to provide validation for others to be able to say, they're not really engaged for or against anything. This thing has blown over. So I was appreciative of it. And and to me, controversy, if you're black in America, you should embrace the idea that progress is going to come with some degree of controversy. So I'm happy that Nike did what they did. We responded in the way that we you know, we responded. There's a healthy debate in our community because now it brings back to the forefront how silly this whole overall conversation has been, and unfortunately, how silly the folks who've been punishing Kaepernick have been around this issue. If the community is happy about Nike's embrace of Kaepernick, does that mean that? that struggling uh, black parent, that struggling black household, that struggling black teen, Mm -hmm. that adult, Mm -hmm. uh, that we should ramp up more Nike shoe buying, meaning that, uh, you know, uh, we are overweight the purchase of overpriced shoes. As a community, uh, we're overweight, meaning that uh, our community is bankable to pay at relative to income, mm-hmm. relative to wealth, uh, we're buying these type of shoes more than anybody else mm-hmm. in, the, in the community. So Nike's shoe sales, they go up, meaning that uh, I imagine that a lot of people like this move. They have already tested it. They've calculated it. And now they're going to profit more off out of it. 
But uh, I think it would be a, a, a bad thing if the community starts going out and buying even more Nikes, helping Nikes market cap. Uh, and uh, we don't transition to a mindset that, hey, if I'm going to vote for Nike and I like what they're doing, mm -hmm. go buy the stock for $86 mm -hmm. or, or so. Yep. I don't know if I'd call it a bad thing, but I'd say it's there's a missed opportunity, right? So there there's the culture and the commerce part of this. So our our culture, like it or not, you know, American black community culture embraces fashion, embraces brands. And just think about most of your experiences as a kid and you you either were with the kids who wore the cool brands or you were with the kids who didn't wear the cool brands with you, you know, and, and that sometimes was about money and sometimes it was about the perspective of your family. So I would say it would be a missed opportunity, but the opportunity, that's a missed opportunity in the moment. The greater opportunity still exists. What you should now know if you are an African-American designer or a Hispanic-American designer or an LGBTQ designers that maybe you can anchor your brand around things and people that don't seem obviously whitewashed. You can actually be edgy and there's an audience for it. Now, some people may not have an appetite for it, but there's an audience there. So I'm always a firm believer that we as a community should be encouraging ownership. And if you like shoes, there should be a shoe designer that is in your closet, maybe all your shoes don't have to be designed by an African-American, but think about the folks who are designing shoes and maybe they design shoes that are just as good and you should be supporting them. Or if you think you've got a better idea, go and build a shoe line and start marketing it to your friends and colleagues. Let's talk about yeah. the timing of Nike's smart play, profitable play, embracing cap. Yeah. Okay. So the timing of it is Nike's under a lot of scrutiny. They're... Head of diversity and inclusion, a brother, uh, Antion Andrews, quit. Their work culture internally uh, has been called into question by executives on the inside. And uh, I looked at the executive team of Nike, uh, and it's no surprise. Uh, my viewpoint doesn't change uh, either way because, you know, I don't see Nike banging in the streets from a uh, a, a kind of community perspective, right? I think they're going to pick their spots where they can uh, profit, where they can hit their earnings, they can grow market share. Uh, but when I looked at uh, Nike's executive team, it looked like Netflix executive team. It's mm -hmm. all white. You know, mm -hmm. no, no, I'm not even talking about black folks, no Asians, yeah. uh, no Indians. Yeah. It's just 100% white. And so the CEO, uh, when they're coming under all this scrutiny, the CEO of Nike sends out an internal memo and he says, he's like, we've done pretty much, uh, in so many words, a poor job uh, at hiring black folks and others. Okay. Uh, he doesn't say it in those words, but he says that Nike as an institution, that they've had trouble hiring folks that don't come from the good old boys club. Mm -hmm. Uh uh, what are your what are your thoughts? Like, how do you put this together? Like, they're embracing Cap. Oh my gosh, this guy's shaking up America. And then on the other time, you know, the management team looks like MAGA. Yeah. Well, you know, listen. I think the world, for good, bad, or indifferent, is going to have to come to a realization that diversity on all levels, gender, you know, sexual orientation, race. Those issues aren't going away because the numbers of the people who've usually been on the marginalized side of that conversation 
are too significant. So you're going to see an increase in wave of companies have to deal with that in some way. And I think that that debate is timely and a good thing because what's starting to happen is it means that the folks like us and black people have always been on the losing side of this debate about cultural prominence or cultural influence on the things that are really meaningful to our, our to a capitalist economy is that those people are increasingly gaining value and their opinions matter, whether, the, whether it be that they are consumers and they matter in that regards, or whether it be that they are potential partners, you know, aka sponsors, and they matter in, in that regard. So to me, it's, you know, it's a good thing that they have come to that point. I think what they've signaled is they probably signaled to a bunch of other Fortune 500 companies, not all, but a bunch of them, that, listen, this is actually not a particularly controversial thing. It's really blown over in less, in a shorter time than the Stormy Daniels thing is blown over, right? And they've moved on, and from a financial standpoint, we can debate that whether it's been a good thing or a bad thing, and in most cases, it's been a good thing for them. So why wouldn't other companies embrace that? Yeah, I think it's also an inflection point where a lot of our people on the left, uh, progressive folks, mm -hmm. we want radical change. And if we want radical change and something like this comes up, we can't act like the Negro from 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, meaning that the old Negro uh, that is on the bottom of everything, that, that, that's losing in a lot of cases, uh, the old Negro is going to go out and buy a whole bunch of Nikes in Harlem, going to go out and buy a lot of Nikes in Compton. Uh, uh, the old Negro is going to go out and buy uh, a lot of Nikes on Sunrise Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale on the west side. Uh, however, if we're saying we want radical change, then we have to remix the culture and say, hey, if the old people would go out and buy more Nikes, in this case, the new one would either need to buy the Nike stock so you can profit with Nike, or we have to think about how we can build our own uh, Nike. But we, 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 we got to do something uh, different if we want uh, uh, a radical change. Uh, and, it's, and, and it starts with little things like this, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you if we want a radical change. The, the, the nuance, I think, is whether or not radical change is a realistic expectation in this particular instance. And, and I'm a fan of taking incremental change in the face of no change if you can't have radical change. So in this specific instance, it can be a yes and scenario. Yes, Nike, we're happy you did this. Um, we applaud you for doing this and know that we have expectations that you do the other things that we expect a company of your size to do. If you want to enjoy a relationship with us, you need to, your leadership needs to reflect inclusion of our perspective. The way you do commerce needs to reflect fairness with our suppliers. The way you market your product needs to be sensitive to our communities and the way that you share in your resources as a corporate, you know, corporate entity in the world needs to also benefit our community. So it's a it's a yes and sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, you're talking my language because yeah. that, that that brings up a good point in terms of uh, cap and the community 
uh, possibly taking this opportunity where we'll continue to support you. But as a group, as a buying power group, uh, we need to negotiate our relationship with you. Yep. You've got everything too cheap over the years building your $140 billion company. You got the black community too cheap. But going forward, uh, you know, let's talk about a couple of strategic things we can work together on uh, where you can benefit and the community can benefit a lot more than we have uh, uh, in the past. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. And, and it's, it's, you've got to think mutual. Any exchange or interchange that, to be sustainable, it's got to be mutual. And Nike at heart is a capitalist manifestation. It's a publicly traded company. So commerce is going to be not the only driver, but a primary driver. And I'm fine with Nike making money off of people. The reality is, you know, take me and you, you've mentioned the price a couple of times. As a kid, the first time I owned a pair of Nike shoes, I was probably 18, 19 years old, simply because my mother couldn't afford them. And so she bought other shoes. You know, but other people bought those shoes and worked, you know, many of my friends worked job Burger King and subways and other places just to be able to buy the shoes and the clothes. So I'm fine with them doing commerce. It's just now that we're all smarter about what a, a, a fair and balanced relationship is. Let's start to make those demands of these retailers if they want our loyalty. And but to me, if you're going to make those demands, it has to be a multiplex conversation right you can't simply talk about things that make you feel good if you're not actually being empowered and if you're not actually being enriched then it's not something that transitions to the next generation or allows you to help other people yeah right so i don't just want them to run commercials and make me feel good i like those as well yes and i want them to empower people like me if not me and enrich people like me if not me through the way their commerce who they employ who they do business with and they're a publicly traded company so anyone can buy their stock but they can invest in and partner with co smaller companies to help them grow their brands uh do you think cap will leverage his position in relationship with nike uh where some may say hey spike lee there was no agenda, you know, Spike Lee, he got paid. Uh, it was a mutual beneficial partnership between a company and an individual. However, for the broader black community, with some of these institutions that massively profit off of us, who's going to take the agenda to the beast? Yeah. Listen, it, 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 it's uncertain in terms of where Cap will end up. Uh, I believe the brother has the right to decide how he wants to proceed. I'm not sure he signed up to be a martyr. I'm not sure he's yet fully a martyr in the way that we've had people martyred in our community, but he's certainly been hurt in an unfair way. That said, when you think about the situation, say for instance, around Spike Lee, as you mentioned, I think progress comes in you being able to realize whatever it is you want to realize and make the impact that you can make in the community. And that may not be the same impact that everyone can make. Spike Lee's impact in our community, and I can't speak for him, but from the outside is telling stories and impacting mindsets in a way that allow you to reframe what goes on in the world around you. And so if you look at the Nike commercials that he made, the voice that he was projecting, the characters that he played, in addition to the characters that the others in those commercials played, that was bringing an element 
of his black culture to the table in a way that was not simply farcical. And so his relationship with Nike actually advanced his agenda because he was able to tell stories in his characteristic way, which allowed for celebrating and even making fun of, in, in sort of loving ways, black culture. And he brought that to waves of people. And so there's a certain cool or certain exposure to black culture that other people were being provided in an accessible way. And the more accessible it became, that actually, I think that influenced a lot of people. It influenced me. I suspect also his relationship with Nike, because his business, my understanding is, includes not only the filmmaking, but also the advertising portion of the business, which I suspect the advertising portion of the business likely funded his ability to wait out all the various no's he received in route to getting yeses to produce the movies that he's produced. So now Colin Kaepernick, you know, he's an athlete or has been an athlete. Unfortunately, and I don't know that if he will ever get the opportunity to be the athlete that he was in the way that he wants to be. But he is in a position now where I think he can have significant influence if he seizes the moment. But he doesn't have to seize it in a public public way in the way that I may necessarily want him to, you know. So the short as I think he can figure out a way to leverage this, I'm not sure what his personality or temperament is and what plans he has to take advantage of it. What's your view of uh, the element in the community? They'll look at Colin Kaepernick doing a deal with Nike. Hey, you're supposed to be about the cause. You know, you're supposed to be black, 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 black. You're supposed to be all about us. Uh, You're not supposed to be for profit. What are you doing partnering with Nike? You sold out. What do you got to say? Yeah, well, I'd say that's silly. Um, First off, I would say, why should the man walk away from a He wants to get back into the NFL. So by that standpoint, he would never be here if he hadn't already, quote unquote, sold out to corporate interests. What's the difference of Nike and the NFL, right? (laughs) That's what I'm saying. So if if you're fine for him to get back into the NFL after the (laughs) NFL has done this, and you're upset that a company has paid him I understand it. They were paying him and not taking any credit for it while he was being beaten up. And then they made a commercial and paid him more money. If you're upset about that, then you've got to check who you are and what you are. You've got to ask yourself, what is it really to not sell out? If you live in an apartment building that is owned by a publicly traded real estate investment trust with no African-Americans on the board and a history of you know, not great relations with African-American tenants in certain buildings across the country. Are you asking who your landlord is? That's a little different in terms of housing. Uh, well, no, go yeah, go and build I, yeah. your own house. Go and yeah. find land. Yeah. Since we're since we're going That's radical, a, go find land. Yeah. Build your own house. I'm from Jamaica. My grandmother and grandfather built their own house. Didn't have financing. It took them longer. It was built out of bricks and they raised the whole family there on land that she bought with her money. So... For those of us, those of us who are driving cars, maybe we should go and find a black manufacturer of bikes and ride a bike and just be fine with it. So we all, if, if, if selling out is engaging in commerce, then America is a tough country for you to exist in because you're doing it every single day. And in often cases, you're doing it with people who don't necessarily go out of their way. Not, they don't necessarily disrespect black people, but they don't go out of their way to elevate and empower black people. All right, so some folks, I think prematurely, 
uh, I love Cap myself. I love what he's done. I love the sacrifices. I love the consistency. Um, some folks have said Cap is the modern Muhammad Ali. Is that premature? Premature. Um, listen, Kaepernick did something that should be lauded. He took a knee and continued to take a knee in the face of being challenged. Kaepernick has, did not, to my knowledge, was not knowingly risking his life, right? I'm not sure that he knew at the time that he was risking his career. He knew that he was doing something that wasn't necessarily desirable, but I don't know that he was risking his career. So if you're going to start talking about Muhammad Ali, who, by the way, knowingly accepted the likelihood of going to jail, knowingly accepted giving up the world championship at a time when it wasn't as if he was enriched with a, a, a college degree and all this other stuff that he would know for a fact that he'd be perfectly fine. He took significant risk, but I'd even go beyond that. It's, you know, we all have to take perspective here. We, at least those of us who are in the Western world, I happen to be from Jamaica, we're descendants of slaves. There were people who at times took the risk of life and death for them and everyone they knew just for the simple act of trying to be free and have the right to exercise human dignity. So the rest of us who exercise, who endure some level of indignities, in my case, sometimes it's, you know, not being able to get a business opportunity in the same way that everyone else gets it. In Kaepernick's case, not being able to be given the right to exercise his own personal beliefs in his profession. None of us are going to be horse with. None of us are going to be tarred and feathered. Real people were actually really tarred and feathered. None of us are going to be hung from a tree in the public square and burnt for what we've done. There are people who just for simply saying no have been able, have, have yeah. had that done to them. So this is a modern, this is, we're talking modern Negro issues here. Yeah, uh, uh, you bring up some some very good points. Uh, and with Muhammad Ali, uh, let's put it in perspective. You know, Muhammad Ali, at a time when Malcolm X is talking uh, violence in America, Malcolm X is talking separatism. Uh, Elijah Muhammad is talking separatism. Muhammad Ali had the whole world looking at him and he said I'm banging with this uh, I'm banging folks who are talking about shooting back I'm banging with folks who are talking about real black separatism here and you could take my title you could take my freedom I don't care I'm banging for the people you know uh, so I do think uh, although I have a lot of praise uh, for, for, for Cap but I think it would be premature uh, to start calling him the modern uh, Muhammad Ali. Yeah, uh, pre yeah. Pre premature, but he should be lauded, right? It's yeah. like saying, you know, is LeBron better than Michael Jordan, better than whoever? It's, you know, he's in this time. He, exi he exists in this context. So in this context, as a privileged and talented athlete on the national stage, he took great risk. Now, the real question we should be asking is, and, and to me, we should go beyond Kaepernick. It's the others, right? They all now know what the stakes are. At the time, many of them didn't. So the question would be, 
the people who are no longer kneeling, no longer raising their fist, what calculus have they made as to what they're willing to do now versus what they were willing to do those first three or four weeks when the pain wasn't obvious, right? If Kaepernick looked like Buster Douglas, could he have gotten this far? Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely could have. If he, if, he, if he didn't look uh, a certain way uh, or um, like a multiracial man, uh, if he looked like Buster Douglas, mm-hmm. could he have gotten this far? From In terms of the notoriety and the mainstream yeah. media and Nike yeah. and all this other stuff. I think yes. And I think that's because he inherited or, or he existed in a space that is just a different lane when it comes to football. If you're the quarterback of the team, the eyes that are projected on you are just substantially different. Now, you know, I'm sure, yes, there is a light-skinned black bias that exists broadly in the world. I don't think that that exists in athletics. I actually think it's the reverse. But I don't think it hindered him. I think he was talented enough. But his position and the notoriety he has gotten, I think, is mainly because he was a quarterback, perceived to be the face of the franchise, and he never stopped. The other people broke off the the protest well, even, at a certain point. Well, even within black folks of, of goodwill and who want to uh, uplift their people, uh, if you take Malcolm X, part of the rationale why he was selected as, 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 as a minister, uh, it wasn't just his intellect, his hard work, but there was a thinking within his organization that our people are so sick uh, in terms of an inferiority complex against ourselves. Our people are so sick to pull our people out of that uh, inferiority uh, uh, complex, the colorism, to pull the people out of that. I ha- I'm better off using a fair-skinned black man. And so certain ministers were, were, were prioritized uh, where you guys are going to respond better uh, to someone lighter. You guys are so sick. Yeah. Well, even, even preaching black nationalism. <laughs> no, listen, we, we're animals, right? And we have an animal brain. Now we've evolved, but I take issue with that, but go ahead. <laughs> Fair point. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. another, another episode, another yeah, episode. Yeah. Right. And, and so if you think about it, why are presidents of the United States usually taller than average? Right. Uh, why are people with a certain resonance in their voice perceived as more authoritative, not necessarily because of their intellect or the content of what they're saying, but just simply the sheer voice? For black people, the, another dimension has been added, and that's the issue of coloration, because being dark was such a significant negative at one point that being lighter or being less than dark become has become a built-up advantage. And so, you know, it's something that I think we're progressively working our way out of, and it's built around giving someone the agency at an individual level to be who and who they want to be if they merit the opportunity to do so. And when you start to do that, you become less inclined to think about yourself in the eyes of others. Right? Yeah. And that's coming from, you know, listen, me, I, I, I know 
that there have been many instances where me being a fairer skinned person has benefited me relative to some of my peers, if nothing else in perception. So the questions that are asked of me when I'm in certain environments are not the same questions that have, are asked of others. The the sort of perception th issues, you know, walking into certain places with a blazer, uh, I'm not, you know. Looked at it like a Buster yeah, not, Douglas with a blazer. Yeah, yeah, you know, or, 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 or someone like that. So, you know, we all benefit from perception, including, you know, folks who are attractive benefit from a certain positive perception. Folks that have uh, body types that society celebrates benefit from a certain perception, right? We'll grow out of that over time. And I think you're starting to see, you know, the women have been particularly good about, you know, progressing. And I don't know all the details, but if you watch what's happening in the culture of women and in particular black women, you're seeing a broader embrace of body types and allowing for and celebrating the fact that there's beauty in all types of body types. And it's an individual perspective. There's no dominant form of what it takes to be beautiful. I think that's going to extend progressively to coloration and we'll you know at least we will be able to grow out of that i think larger community may end up growing out of it but we are masters of our fate now we can dictate to people how they interact with us when we elevate our voices it's when we're silent and we accept the status quo even though we don't like it that things continue to happen okay i want to change gears uh here uh and talk about something uh uh that is concerning me right now. You lived through the 2000 uh, tech bubble and crash. Did I ever? Uh, you lived through uh, the 2008 uh, real estate bubble, mm -hmm. asset bubble and crash. Uh, and so you have experience. You've, you've seen it where, uh, you know, all the experts and everybody's saying, oh man, these are good times. They're going to keep on going. And then all the experts and a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of investors, uh, they really get taken to the cleaners in, in terms of, uh, uh, from a risk perspective, a risk management yep. perspective, uh, they never thought that things could turn so fast and so hard. And so, you know, when I, when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs uh, and, you know, I read some of their, their commentary, uh, uh, there's no mention of uh, profits, uh, right? And, <laughs> And, uh, you know, hey, Silicon Valley, there's a there's a philosophy that, hey, profits can come later. You got to go really big. OK, yeah. right. Uh, uh, so really focus on growth. Uh, profits will come later. Yeah. However, for the black entrepreneur who's dependent on what I would call foreign capital, uh, that if the data says that, uh, hey, you know, you're going to uh, have a much harder time possibly raising capital because a lot of your people uh, haven't had big exits. People have not seen a lot of you guys come by the desk and pitch. Yep. And some of us are, are racist. So, uh, but for the black entrepreneur. I say lack cultural sensitivity. Okay. For the black entrepreneur, in terms of economic cycles, well, do you think black entrepreneurs and founders and investors should have a heightened sense of awareness if you're dependent on foreign capital, outsourced capital, hard capital to get, uh, where everyone is cheerleading the what I would what I would call a bubble. I do believe that there's a there's a bubble, 
uh, and no one talk, no one's talking about profits. Uh, but is this a time for a reality check for black entrepreneurs and investors in terms of where we are in the economic cycle? Now, perspective should be heightened, but I think you should always be obsessively thinking about what are the systemic risks in your life and your business. And to your point, if you're getting capital from folks who have some degree of discretion and people forget, even if we have a contract, my discretion is to just say I'm not going to perform and I'll accept the outcome. And I don't know too many folks who've taken investors to court to sue them for not delivering funds. Also, most of the documents you sign give them some level of out in a worst case scenario. So investors, African-American entrepreneurs who have always unfortunate for them and, and unfair had less access to capital need to view capital as a systemic risk and be obsessively thinking about how to maintain their access to it. And if that means that your business model has to adjust to the investor population, now you have to start thinking more about profits or think about profit in a deeper way, or maybe you need to start globalizing your access to capital, right? So that you have more people who aren't simply locked into the American economic system aware of you as an opportunity to invest in. Let's research 2000 in terms of how checks, they, they can stop, including venture capital. Yeah, listen, they can, checks st can, can, can stop immediately. Uh, follow on rounds, 2008, uh, everything stopped. Investors just stopped writing checks uh, uh, in, in a lot of cases for everybody. But for the black entrepreneur, would you say that because of the institutional environment, mm -hmm. how everything is set up, where we are today, should the entrepreneur be have a heightened sense of kind of racing to profitability, cash flow? Y yes. I mean, the short, the short is, yeah, and, and you can, we can track back. Maybe this time is different. I don't know. I've, I've heard it many times and, and you alluded to 2000 and 2008. I'm not sure if, if I was dumb or unlucky, but I had the wonderful fortune of being a tech worker in 2000 as a computer engineer, uh, you know, valued on paper at that time in my early 20s, $5 million, I remember, as of maybe January of 2000. And then by May of 2000, maybe April of 2000, it's essentially zero on paper. And then in 2008, I'm in real estate as a real estate developer, working for a real estate developer, and we go on a run where essentially for those four years had nothing to do. In both of those instances, what you realize, and, and, and I'd been told it before in school, undergrad, as well as grad school, is you know, black folks are the last people hired and the first people fired when things go really bad because this extra consideration for diversity and all those things go out of the window and people just simply run to safety and fall back to their on natural what, biases. On reliability, yeah, past or, statistics. Or their natural biases, yeah. right? Which is, hey, I've not usually done this before and this was a special program. You were an emergent manager or you were in my black tech fund. And now we're all just trying to survive. So I need to go to the core fund. 
entrepreneurs need to have that same mindset and realize that the capital comes to you is likely to come to you. Traditional capital will come to you last and leave you first relative to your your other counterparts. And the question is, what do you do in response to that? I think one of the steps is to raise the profitability and try to be in a position to play you know, to, to have a stronger profile for the traditional investor. The other approach is, can you somehow hack the capital raising system and find ways to get pockets of dollars that are broader, have less exposure to um, U.S. systemic risk? Right? Of course, there's global risk, but can you find pockets of investors? That's part of why I'm telling people, listen, you've got to, you know, you, you got to get smart about ICOs and securitized token as one option. Two, you've got to realize that there are people in South America and families in Europe and families in Africa who are wealthy and have funds and are looking for interesting things that are doing well in the U.S. that can be expanded to their continent. So maybe you find a pool of investors outside of the traditional norm of the U.S. venture capitalists or in addition to. You look at where we are in the economic cycle, meaning that I believe we're, we're due for another uh, crisis where capital freezes up again. No one obviously knows the time, uh, but 10 years into this bull market, I believe we're, we're due for something big to hit. One of the things I, I think about is, you know, you read about all these entrepreneurs, they go hiring, you know, hiring, you know, we're hiring a whole bunch of engineers, we're hiring 100 employees, we're doing that. And so, the new entrepreneur, this is their first time out. Yeah. You know, they may complain about pattern matching on the investor side, but they see other entrepreneurs and they're like, man, you got to go big and I got to hire all these people. Uh, you really want to uh, play out a scenario where what happens where you don't get to break even or profitability, you got to go back and raise the capital, but you're in a very messy recession or crisis. And so, uh, one of the, I believe one of the underappreciated aspects of uh, a good entrepreneur uh, or a superior entrepreneur is there's some type of risk management analysis uh, where it's kind of like you're a hybrid entrepreneur. You're going for it for sure. However, you're a risk taker, but you, you have acquired a private equity mine uh, in terms of there's a certain way uh, a VC uh, an entrepreneur thinks, and there's mm -hmm. a certain way a private equity investor mm -hmm. uh, thinks in terms of return, cash. You know, one of the things to think about is, hey, where we are in the cycle, uh, obviously you want to look at it relative to your industry, but where we are in the, the broader economic cycle is, uh, you know, are we at time? Are we at a time at the end of the cycle? And do I want to hire you know, 25 employees, or do I want to just hire five and let's see how this thing plays out? I actually think that, you know, humans, even the subconscious psyche of humans is highly, highly evolved and people make very smart decisions without knowing why. And if you, on, on large scale, and if you think about what the, the scenario for the average investor, the average investor, the vast majority probably high 90 percent high 90s percent of the capital that has, that has gone into their business is other people's money 
if you gave me a scenario where other people's money is substantially funding my effort and those people tell me they value scale, which means I have to take on operating expenses, primarily, you know, labor to scale, I'm going to respond to it because they're rewarding me for something in the downside of failure is not me losing money. It's not necessarily me losing reputation because the American culture has already dealt with the culture of bankruptcy and things of that nature. It's just me having lost the opportunity. But going back to that axiom, scared money doesn't make money now from if you operate with my mindset. But I'm not a tech entrepreneur today. My mindset is everything I do, even when it's not my money, I operate as if it is my money. So the loss of money is a painful thing to me. And so I'm always focused on you cannot sink the ship. It's one thing if you lose some of the, you know, some of the stuff off the deck, but you cannot sink the ship. What would you say to that sister, brother, entrepreneur, founder? They'll say, look, in today's world, people sell their businesses to other companies. That's the highest probability. Or possibly you hit the lotto and you IPO. Uh, but the third thing that has changed is cash flow profits. That's not part of the exit plan. So now in terms of, uh, the current environment, profits is not really in the mix in terms of some type of investor return, uh, or it's, it's part of the liquidity, uh, plan for the founder, uh, and the investors to return cash from the profits of the business. So you remove mm-hmm. that now mm-hmm. in the current bubble cycle, profits don't matter. And mm-hmm. so that sister comes to you and says, look, you're old school. You know, that you, you may just be an old head. You know, in tech, we don't care about cash. We don't care about profits. I'm going to sell this business or maybe I'll IPO. What's your response to that? Well, my response to that would be, you may be right. So let's sit down and talk about it. And I would, I would start to try to discern whether or not your product or service is truly groundbreaking and innovative. Because I do believe there's a place for things that are groundbreaking or innovative for them to merit continued focus, even when they're not making money because they're going to start to be applied at a future time and become relevant. And so I'd say if you're doing something that's groundbreaking and innovative, then okay, there's a place here for us to turn around and to sell this to someone. But let's really, really ask that question. And if you find out that what you're doing is not particularly unique and but it's it's profitable or or rather it's successful and it's scaling, then you have to realize when it's time for you to sell, there are going to be a wave of options. They're going to be copycats tomorrow. And if your business is not a successful business as measured by profits or at least revenue growth and your product is not unique, then what really is the value beyond your headcount? If you're a believer, as I am, that there is systemic bias in the private capital markets, a lot of the younger generation, they may not know that if you believe that there's bias in raising capital and pitching to everybody and there's bias there, there's also bias when it's time that, that you're a forced seller. You may have to sell your company or you may want to sell your company, but the bias shows up there too. So is this something to think about in terms of how you manage uh, the growth and the budgets of the business? Life is and business is simple. If you just simply translate the basic things in your life 
to the complex things in your life. And if you think about any relationship you've had, the condition under which that relationship broke up, right? Why, wh- why you broke up, why there was anger towards you was substantially different than when you started it. So when things are good, the perception that people have about whether we should continue or not are drastically different than when things are bad. The same is true in business. When, it's, when the markets are melting, when capital is constrained, the expectation of the very same investor who told you scale, 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 don't worry about profits, now becomes, I need profits because I can't go to LPs or go to my individual investors and tell them that I want to put money into companies that aren't making money because cash flow is king. When you see nine out of 10 entrepreneurs in this current environment, uh, they don't care about profits now, they don't care about profits in a few years. Is that an indicator for you that, hey, the market is likely to turn? approach to 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 risk and profits businesses need profits essentially i don't think that's substantially different than what has always been the case once venture capital became a prolific part of how you fund new and new enterprise the entrepreneur is always going to say if you're willing to give me money and that includes real estate by the way if you're willing to give me money and more money I'm willing to dance the dance. This is where I I see the friction because if you look at the data, hey, I can go back to my investors. I get another round, right? And so I can always go back and get capital from the investors. However, with black founders, right, you have not had this relationship to the private capital. You have not had the knowledge with this private capital. You have not had the experience with the private capital going back the last 30 years. These things count. So don't pattern yourself after groups who've been in the game a while and they have a certain connectivity to the capital, uh, uh, a certain connectivity with investors, where you start patterning patterning your business thinking that oh okay i don't have to care about profits because i can just go back to investors just like everybody else that's where i see the uh, heightened risk out there and listen i agree with you on the overarching thesis it's what grandmother used to say right you have to be twice as good to get half as much and i think we would all be wise to operate with that mindset until the world convinces you that things have changed And the world hasn't convinced me that things have changed in that regard. As we start to gain more equity in society, maybe it will change over time. But today, you can't tell me that the average black tech entrepreneur has access to capital in the same way that the average, you know, non-black tech entrepreneur does. You have to be particularly good, particularly privileged in terms of or have a particularly strong product. And so we have to think about that and embrace that, that the rules aren't exactly the same. Are the rules better for us today than the past? Yeah, but they're not exactly the same. And that comes down to profitability. But if you think about it, and again, it it goes back to what I was saying, this is a modern Negro issue. Folks that are being funded with these companies, uh, they'll get a couple years of a great run, right? They'll have a wonderful experience. If they get washed out, they're not going bankrupt, most of them. They're losing a job. Maybe now they go and get a job or they, or they f- start a new company. But, but I tell people if the market is telling you to operate in this way, 
and you're doing so in a legal and ethical way, then I'm not going to argue with you. For me, I'm about building wealth and hopefully building intergenerational wealth. So I'm not interested in taking significant losses and then having to come back with a new business card and a new flagship. So I'm, I'd rather leave some profit potential on the table to manage my risk in a way that allows me to say when things go really bad, look, I did well with your money. That's why you should have a 20 year, 30 year, 40 year relationship with me because this is not, I'm not in a hyper transactional business. But if you're young and you're getting the opportunity to be in a magazine or go to these conferences and you're being told that the game that we're all playing is you raise money, you tell us you're going to scale rapidly and you don't worry about profits. I can't begrudge you for thinking that way. I do think there's a place for folks to begin thinking about we want to build a sustainable enterprise. So this is not just simply a new venture that's raising money. We're looking to build a sustainable enterprise. And it's very possible that my kids or my grandkids are the ones that are going to realize the peak of the mountain. I'm just climbing the mountain and I can't afford to fall off. Our brother, Andrew Gilliam, won the Democratic primary in the state of Florida. What was your feeling when you saw that? And you've been working so hard in the streets. Uh, you're one of the, the folks within the Miami business establishment that backed him early on. Well, listen, I, I, I was happy. But, you know, when you've spent a year expecting something to occur and it plays out as you expected it, it, it ends up being more about contentment than euphoria, right? So when I looked at this and, and proud of, of Andrew Gillum, proud of the person he is, proud of the ideals that he represented and proud of his courage to step up at the moment. And I said, in just looking at the race, you know what? I don't think an African-American will have a better race to win for governor given who Andrew is and who the other people are. I don't think that may happen in my lifetime. And I couldn't talk myself out of helping him, which that was my initial inclination was I really don't. I just want to focus on my business. I'd spent a lot of my youth doing politics and I didn't want to get into it. And I looked at the race and said, he can win. He deserves to win, but he needs help. And I think I can be helpful in my own small way. I can't walk away from this fight. We can always lose, but he had every reason to win. How much credit should go to Gilliam rejecting uh, some of the kind of Mark Penn uh, corporate Democrat establishment where they think like, hey, you got to run in the middle. You're going to scare some middle white folks. Don't go too far to the left. But Gilliam, for a black candidate, uh, 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 he really impressed me where, uh, from my perspective, he ran hard unapologetically as a progressive. And on the, the kind of the core policy issues, he seemed to, I'm not you know, kind of exaggerating differences or division within the mm -hmm. Democratic Party, but he ran hard left. And he didn't, I mean, he didn't care uh, kind of what some of the folks at the top thought. He ran hard left. Well, that's the beauty of being new to the dance, right? Is you're not tethered to what has always been the mindset. You're allowed without having any shame or guilt to say, 
the voters have told us what they want. They told us what they wanted when they voted President Obama and he won the state. They told us what they want when collectively Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders performed the way that they performed. And something that I don't think people give Mayor Gillum credit for, in part because he's such a spectacular orator. And so, you know, folks boil it down to charisma and passion. Folks ignore the fact that he is probably one of the greatest political minds of his generation and his experience in terms of understanding liberal policies, having been exposed nationally to the mindset of the voters who embrace liberal policies, far exceeds mo- mo- most people. Yeah, you bring up a, a, a good point where I felt the night that Gilliam won, Don Lemon, uh, I had to turn the channel. So Don Lemon spends like 10 minutes focusing on Gilliam is black. And, uh, you know, I'm here in Florida. I'm seeing Gilliam. Which matters, which matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, not going to say okay. that. <laughs> but Gilliam is in the streets in Parkland talking about gun reform. Uh, he's in the streets talking about criminal justice re- reform. Uh, he's in the streets campaigning uh, and articulating uh, uh, nuanced policy points. And he's campaigning crisscrossing the state. And Don Lemon doesn't mention anything about Gilliam but the fact that he's black. Uh, and I, I don't know, my, my interpretation of that, when, when I saw it, because, you know, hey, you could say that I'm in Florida, I know uh, Mayor Gilliam, I've met Gilliam, I've talked with Gilliam, Gilliam has been on the Go podcast. Hey, maybe I have an informational advantage over Don Lemon. I think that's what it is. I think that's what it is. You don't think that it's just poor journalism? No. Well, you know, I don't think it's poor journalism because I think I think Don Lemon understands what his audience expects of him and their expectations of him is to emote and to project in a way that is, you know, a balance between your, you know, your old school Walter Cronkite type of person, but also your your new school sort of color commentary where it's part your opinion and part your emotions are being obviously projected. Yeah, but you just talked about people don't give Gilliam enough credit where a lot of our politicians, great politicians, Barack Obama, Andrew Gilliam, they're cheapen in terms of, hey, yeah, they're the first black. Uh, yeah, they're great orators. There's so much substance mm-hmm. uh, under these mm-hmm. uh, leaders, right? And I feel like if, if black folks in the media, uh, our responsibility uh, is to pull that stuff out to the to the surface that I would expect Don Lemon let. Yeah, you can mention that he could be the first black governor in the state of Florida. Yeah, that's newsworthy. But how did this brother run a campaign where... No one believed he can win, including the black Miami establishment where I, on, Gilliam on the show, I, I talked to him about this, where I, I received feedback from the black Miami establishment that Gilliam has no chance to win. We're not going to back Gilliam. We're going to back Mayor Leaving because uh, we don't think Gilliam even has a chance. So a lot of the folks in the, the, the country did not... Uh, uh, people in Florida, black folks, a lot of people didn't believe that Gilliam could actually get where he got. Yeah. Similar to Barack Obama. But those are people who don't apply rigor to their opinions. And in general case, it doesn't matter. Right. But you say we're all guessing until it really occurs. And what's the base of your guess? Whether you thought, you know, 
you know, Mayor Levine from Miami Beach could win or some other candidate? What's the basis of your guess? And the thing that quickly boiled down to me when I think about politics, because I, I, I balance both. Sometimes I can just passionately like someone, but then you realize hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people have to vote for this person. So what does it matter if I have passion for this person? What do the numbers say is from a probability standpoint are likely? And when you looked at who Mayor Gillum was, what he represented and his skill as a politician in practice, but is also skill in communicating ideas. I looked at it and I say, there is no way in this race he gets less than 20, 22 percent of the vote. You remember me telling you yeah. that was maybe a year ago. And if he does that, there's no way he finishes less than second place. And he's good enough to win first place. So we're in this we're in this thing. But you don't think that some of our uh, brilliant political leaders, uh, political minds like Andrew Gilliam, like Barack Obama, that we can expect white folks to cheapen them and, oh, they're black. Uh, a, they don't know anything. They give good speeches. They're good orators. Uh, we're, we can expect the American establishment to box uh, some of our leaders into they're good speakers. They speak well. Uh, they're the first black. Uh, I can expect that from other folks, but I think from our perspective in the media, uh, if you have Gilliam on your show or you're talking to the country, you want to pop out uh, uh, what type of campaign did he run? You know, what, what, was, what was he doing that was, that, was, that was different? Why spend 15 minutes talking about Gilliam is black? We see that, <laughs> you know. I, I just I think for to to his defense, and I know that he, I don't know that he needs my defense is he's not one of the Sunday shows. Like if he were sitting at the desk of, of any one of those Sunday shows, which have a certain degree of rigor in terms of how they discuss a topic, he would have peeled into it a little bit better. But I do give him the latitude to celebrate something that was significant. Now, mind you, I'm a person who believes Coming in second just means you're the first loser. You can be content that you didn't come in third, but you still ultimately lost. So that's why I was more content the night of the primary. But I was ready that night. I'm making phone calls. You know, 8.05, it was obvious that he's going to win. I'm making phone calls then because I'm saying, okay, now we're in the championship round. And we came here. Mayor Gillum stood up and put himself on the table to be the governor of Florida, not someone who ran for governor. And that's not decided until November the 6th. And so to me, it's just, sure, let's celebrate the the novelty and the significance, by the way, if you think about it, and, and, and we shouldn't lose this moment. If you think about the U.S. in general, think about the Southeast dating back to reconstruction. I'm not sure. I don't I haven't studied this, but I'm not sure there's been any black person nominated to be the a candidate of a major party for governor in any southern state dating back to Reconstruction. And the few people you can find in Reconstruction that were nominated or became governor, I believe there was someone in Louisiana. When you really look at their platforms, they were essentially recruited by the status quo and put into the race during the Reconstruction era. So here you have a black man who happens to be mayor of the city who on his own volition chose to run ran with 
you know, some opposition or some uncertainty from the establishment picked his own platform. So he is his own candidate. So I, I dare say, and, and you have to recognize Miss Stacey Adams as well. He, he and her, you know, are, are the two, only two candidates we've ever had in the Southern U S who are black, who have been able to secure the nomination on their own platform. So that's significant. Uh, more than a few black celebrities uh, uh, supported uh, other candidates. Uh, it's not, you know, I definitely don't believe like, hey, you know, it's a black candidate. All the black people got to support the black candidate. Uh, no, but when you look at Barack Obama, Maya Angelou chose the corporate Democrat at the time, HRC. Bob Johnson, a BET, did not choose Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. He actually mentioned... Barack Obama's drug use to rally support for <laughs> Hillary Clinton in his speech. Uh, Magic Johnson did not support Barack Obama. He supported Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And so this gets into when we do have good leaders, Barack Obama, Andrew Gilliam, stop blaming. Everybody else is doing all this stuff to us. We don't really have any agency. We can't change anything. It's too, the thing is too big for us to change. But when you look at Andrew Gilliam and members of our community who believed in his policy positions, they chose not to support him because they wanted favors from the people they thought, the white folks that they thought that they were going to win. And so just as we see in business and investing, if our people want change, and in some cases radical change, you're going to have to take some risks, and you're going to have to take some risks on your own. When you find a good leader among us, even if the polls don't show uh, 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 that this person has a really good chance, take some risk on yourself for a change. I agree with you, right? and and I think you know, the Obama situation and, and this situation with Mayor Gillum, I think is slightly different, but let's focus on, on Mayor Gillum. I think a lot of it had to do with some people wanting certain favors, but I also think some people just did not believe he could win. But then you, you look and you say, it's one thing to say you think Hillary Clinton, who was the wife of a former president, perceivably perceived to be loved by the black community, was likely to win. But in this race with Mayor Gillum, which of these other candidates suggested any overwhelming probability that they would win such that you would say there's no chance they would ever lose? It just didn't it did not make logical sense to me to not think that Mayor Gillum could win. And then if you got to that point, you would say if you in your heart of hearts think that he represents potentially a better candidate, why not support him and take the risk. There are losses and every, anyone can lose. As we saw, the people who were supposed to win lost and Mayor Gillum, who I always knew would win, at least the nomination for the primary. I thought the challenge was, let's see what happens in the general. You heard me early in the game when, when I called you and said, listen, I think he's going to win. And my rationale was always the same. Numerically, he was in such a strong position in terms of his floor 
and relative to his ceiling in comparison to others that I thought he had an easier pathway, much easier to win. It just was not obvious. Now, that required him to be the candidate who we all thought he was. You got to do work. But if you know how good you are and you know who you're competing against, all you have to do is perform and you know that it's likely that you're going to surpass the others. And so I always thought that he was going to win. But getting back to the core point that you're raising is, I think in our community, we have to realize, and you know, I, I face the decision, the easiest thing to do if your mindset is wrapped around commerce, the easiest thing to do is to not do anything that is obviously for the benefit of black people. That doesn't mean you want to hurt them, but the easiest thing to do is to not say you're doing it because you think blackness matters as a part of it. But if you know it matters and in your heart of heart of it matters, why not stand on your conviction and take the risk of potentially losing? The reality is it was a primary. So if you picked Mayor Gillum and he you supported him and he lost, you turn around and you support whoever won just the same way that everyone else does. And we have to start to understand how to play the game strategically, which means not only winning, but winning in a way that enriches your community and empowers your community. And sometimes that means actually having the winner be someone who intrinsically understands your community instead of just someone who wants to understand it. I want to thank Baron Channer for uh, coming on Go. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thanks for coming back. Let's go.